If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4, right at the end of the chapter, verse 20. 1 John chapter 4. The title of the sermon this morning is Actions Speak Louder Than Words. Actions Speak Louder Than Words. Every single one of us has experienced a person telling us that they love us, but in their actions, it's not showing up. Every one of us has in our lives done the same thing to others. Every one of us in our lives has done that with God. Actions do speak louder than words. It is easy to say, I love you. It is hard to do that. To do it correctly. To do it biblically. To do it as God would want. This morning we're going to be looking at two things here in this text. Number one, love people. Chapter 4, verse twenty to chapter 5, verse 2. And number 2, live by faith. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Let's start with number 1, love people. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. If we say that we love God, if someone says, I love God, John starts off by stating something that just about every single one of us has said, that I love God or I love the Lord. So many of us in the church tell others how we love God, how we've been moved by what God has done for us. Claiming something is true without backing it up is a clear indication that that is a false statement. What John says here is very piercing. He says, hates his brother. The one that hates his brother and says he loves God, he is a liar. And I know that's not appropriate in today's politically correct culture to call people liars. But that's essentially what John is doing here. John has already spoken to this earlier in the letter and states on the heels of that statement that we love him because he first loved us. He shows us how connected that statement is and how we love the brethren. It is not a separate thing. It's connected. As we've mentioned before, there are to be new, fresh opportunities for expression of love for the brethren. You see, it becomes very personal to every one of us in the body of Christ when God checks in on how we are doing in our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's typically much easier to love a stranger than someone closer to us in proximity. 
that knows us on a more personal level. That is one of the reasons many mistake tough biblical love coming from a brother or sister as hate and interpret nice gestures as love coming from someone that barely knows them. Loving a brother or sister does not necessarily mean that you are to be nice to them, church. It means that you are to be kind, which is the word that scripture uses. There is a difference. That means that the tone does matter with the motive, but the truth has, needs to still be spoken. Nice people hide the truth with gentle words that sugarcoat reality. I'm sure we've all heard it, right? He's a nice guy. She's a nice girl. That's not what God's after. Loving a brother or sister in Christ does not mean that you never hurt them or they haven't hurt you personally. Some of the closest people that we love, we've been hurt by them and we've hurt them. Family members that are close still have conflicts and friction that they need to work through at times. The best relationships have often been built on the most difficult situations. A loving church does not mean we never confront anything or anyone and that we're just to be nice to one another. A simple disregard or even an outright rage are both essentially hatred for our brethren. When you don't think it's a big deal to care for people in the church or you outright despise them, it's essentially the same thing before God. One of the measures of our love for God is a measurement for our brethren, which is why Jesus makes this standard so important in how we demonstrate that before the world, right? How we love one another is how the world will know that we love God. The church of Jesus Christ has some pretty messed up people, doesn't it? You might be one of them. But they are people that we should love by caring for them as God does. Think of it this way. God cares for the sheep that's gone astray. So should you and I. God forgives us. We ought to forgive one another. God is a giver. We should be givers. The interesting part of this text is that John is getting the church to understand that either you are the liar or you're trying to say that God is. You're trying to make God the liar when it comes to these matters. We look back in 1 John 1, verse 10, we see a similar statement. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we're trying to say that God's a liar. Drop down to 1 John 2, 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. This would be false teachers who are claiming things about God that are not true. 
And just as we just read, 1 John 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And then later on, which we haven't gotten to yet, 1 John 5, verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. In a culture that says we shouldn't tell others they are lying, it's offensive. John tells believers they are liars, either themselves or trying to make God to be one. Trying to convince themselves they love God, while at the same time they have a disregard or even outright disdain for their own brothers and sisters in Christ. Church, this is so important. This is not optional for us. We must understand this. It's easy to spot the fraud in others, isn't it? It's easy to spot the fraud in brothers and sisters around us. But are we the liars that John is talking about here? Do we really love our church family? Would others we talk to outside the church know that we love our brothers and sisters? Or do they only hear the complaints? Do our hearts get stirred in divine praise to the Father for our fellow brothers and sisters? Here's a practical point to think about. When you pray and a brother or sister comes to mind, do you thank God for them? Or are you just apathetic, you care less, you don't really bring them up? Your prayers are selfish, self-centered about you, your needs, your wants, your desires. Does God only hear our murmuring and bickering about others and how they should love us better? You ever come before God asking him to change others only to realize that God is really saying you need to change? You ever come before God and say, why is it that others are like this around me? And God just points the finger right at you. John's giving us the demonstrable proof that talk is cheap, especially when we claim that we love a God that we don't see, or we don't even see, don't even care for those that are right around us. What a statement to make. I love God who I don't see, but the people around me, I could care less about that he loves as well as my brothers and sisters. And this commandment we have from him. This is not optional, church. That he who loves God must love his brother also. 
this isn't optional for you and me. We don't get to go, but God, you don't know how they are. Oh, he knows. He also knows how you are. You haven't been exactly perfect in your relationship with him. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who was begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Here's the part that's hardest to swallow for some of us. We are commanded to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to do it. Either we agree with God on this being important, or we put ourselves as the standard because it seems too difficult for us to agree. Remember, the only way that you and I can love brothers and sisters properly is it takes a divine love that God himself gives us. The patience that we need to endure sometimes among ourselves is only something that God himself can help us with. Because in our natural state, we would not want to be around people. Certain people. Certain brothers and sisters in Christ. This divine love must be enabled by him. Church, I truly don't think we've really ever taken it in fully to understand what it means to love your own as Christ did. To love your own that deny they even knew you or even spent time with you. To deny, to deny that they knew you. Church, take that in for a moment. Someone denying they actually knew you. Your own that don't pray with you. Never mind for you when you are entering your darkest hour on this earth. Your own that leave you stranded to die alone on a cross. Your own that don't believe you when you tell them the truth. Jesus experiences all of this with his disciples. The people he knew on a very personal level, he invested time with them. They were closer than you and I are to each other. Who, by the way, he still loved. When we take up offenses as we do, we essentially say we don't understand the gravity of our own sin before God and what Christ really did in paying for our sin. When you and I take up these offenses that we make to be so stunningly over the top, and they're many times very petty, we essentially are saying we don't understand the gravity of our own sin before God. 
Now, in case you don't think this is what God really means, hear from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God's not looking for worship that's empty. God doesn't want your gifts. He wants you to make things right with other believers. And then come and still offer. Conflict exists and it must be taken care of before coming and offering something before God. If we've offended a person and sought forgiveness, but the apology's been rejected, there's nothing else that we can do on our end. We've fulfilled our obligation. The person unwilling to forgive will have a serious dilemma before God in their state of unforgiveness. I don't think we take seriously enough the warning of not forgiving others. The gift or act of worship itself matters, church, and should still be brought. But unreconciled flaws need to be taken care of. Loving the brethren means that Christ is the source for that love. You won't be able to do it on your own. If we love God, we will love others that love God as well. Others, not just in our own assembly, but others who may worship Christ slightly differently based on their culture, race, or maybe even possibly their denomination. Christ should be the bond between us and other saints of God. Provided that they're not false prophets, as John spoke of earlier. That's why it's important to test the spirits, whether they are of God. Church, it's not only important that we love the brethren, but that we also be sure to live by faith. Number two, live by faith. Chapter five, verses three through five. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcome the world that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Simply put, loving God means you do what he says. Loving God means you do what he says. You keep his commandments. I think one of the more stunning statements in the book of 1 John to many of us would probably be what he says here, particularly if you grew up in a legalistic home. His commandments are not burdensome. What? What are you talking about? 
seems impossible to keep. His commandments are not a burden to those who have been transformed by the love of God and have matured in their faith. Do you remember the weight lifted off your shoulder when you first came to Christ? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember feeling like you were finally free? You didn't feel any burden, did you? Chains were broken. His commandments set you free. They don't enslave you. Any believer that thinks the commandments of God enslave them does not understand the commandments of God. When you and I first trusted Christ, we put all our dependence on him, knowing that he knows better than we do. And as time goes on, what, is ha what happens to many of us? I think I'm going to take this area back for myself to do what I want. Right? We came to him fully dependent. But as time goes on, I don't think I need as much help anymore. I've got this. I'm going to do it my way. The commandments aren't burdens when we realize that they are for our good and his glory. Listen to what Jesus himself says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Understand one thing, believer. The load that you carried in this life before you were a believer, the sin, your doubt, self-regulation, damaged conscience, was heavier without Christ before you came to him. It's still heavier today should you try to do it on your own. Putting those burdens back on our shoulders, thinking we can handle it, is essentially putting something on that God doesn't want us to have on again. The yoke of Christ is not merely a list of do's and don'ts, but of one coming alongside us with a call to discipleship. D.A. Carson says this, we overcome the accuser of our brothers and sisters. We overcome our consciences. We overcome our bad tempers. We overcome our defeats. We overcome our lusts. We overcome our fears. We overcome our pettiness on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. Church, when we don't make discipleship, and what I mean by discipleship is the process of intentionally growing in our walk with God in the community of believers. When we don't make it a priority in our own lives, 
we essentially are saying that we would rather carry the load on our own again. That is one of the reasons why Christians that try to do the spiritual walk on their own are usually the most miserable Christians in the church. Almost always the case. The reason so many of us fail to love God as we should is because discipleship has become optional in the church. We can pick and choose when we start and stop. I'll follow Jesus right now. I'll stop next week. I'll get back on it in next year. And then I'll stop again. I don't know if you remember this song that you and I have sung. Demands our soul, our life, our all, church. None of this on and off business that we do. Amazing grace. Why doesn't it move us to more? Why are we so fickle? Why, are we so, why do we quickly give up? It is literally telling a church, hey, we want people to come to our church. We want to reach our community. And when you ask, would you be willing to do the work? Well, no. Lord, call that other brother or sister to do it. I don't have time for that. Got too much on my plate. Busy with the world. The cares of this world. And church, as, as that parable says, it chokes out the word, doesn't it? Chokes out. Picking up the Bible and believing you don't need others in your walk with God shows that your understanding is incomplete. Whenever I see a person that claims to be a Christian say they don't need people, they don't need the church, I wonder if they've really read the Bible. There is always an area in your life God can use another brother or sister to help you with. Always. There are people less mature than you spiritually that can still benefit you tremendously. Even if it's simply building patience in your life. So how can this be done? How can we be sure to live out what John is saying here. Well, he gives you the answer. Faith. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This suggests that John's emphasis is not so much on a victorious person, but on a victorious power. New birth, regeneration. It's what's divine, it's what's inside that counts. The faith that's been given to us. Going back to what's previously been mentioned in chapter 2 about overcoming the wicked one, as we see here in chapter 4, and overcoming. In 1 John 4, verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you 
is greater than he who is in the world. This living by faith gives us victory over false teaching and Satan's influence over the world and the influence even in our own lives. Even though we overcame in the past, believer, by faith positionally, this still needs to be operative by faith in the present. You don't just start with Jesus, you continue with Jesus. The Bible knows nothing of a person trusting one time and walking away and not caring. Saving faith has proof. If faith is the means by which we overcome, as clearly stated here, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. What does it look like? How do we know we are overcoming? How do we know we are living by faith which overcomes? Is it just a feeling? I feel like I am today? One of the most helpful ways is to see where else the word overcome is used in John's writings. In fact, we see, we see it used multiple times in the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And there are some important truths that are spelled out in what it means to overcome. To live by faith, to overcome, is to, number one, make Jesus priority. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my neighbor's name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You see, the church of Ephesus did right in calling out false teaching. They did right to do what God had called them to in loving others. They forgot their first love. And that, in turn, affected their walk with God. You can be aligned with what Christ stands for, but not make him a priority. Did you know that? 
You can have the doctrine right. You can believe what Scripture teaches, but not have a real close walk with God at that time. We all have had relationships where they've been fractured and we still claim that we love that person, but we know that relationship isn't as close at that time. It's not what it once was. Church, to live by faith, to overcome, is to make Jesus a priority. Not things for Jesus, but Jesus himself. We equate doing things for God as if it's always loving God. Doing things for God apart from the Holy Spirit of God is not doing it the way he would want. Make knowing and loving God your priority. Not merely being right in the doctrinal debates, church. It's not enough to go, we believe in the sovereignty of God over all things. And not truly believe he's sovereign in your own life. I believe that God loves his church. But I really don't care to love other brothers and sisters. To live by faith, to overcome, is also to be faithful in trials. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This cannot be understated. Overstated, I should say. Many believers fall apart when the going gets tough. Many fall apart when the going gets tough. Many followers of Christ throw in the towel because things aren't going their way. Because things are hard. They've experienced a very difficult time in their life. They lost a loved one. Maybe they lost a job. A difficult time in their relationships with others. Maybe they're battling sickness or even depression. That is not when we give up. That is when we cling even more to Christ. Why are we so busy throwing pity parties? Why do we throw pity parties when we have Christ? Believer, you and I have nothing in comparison to many around the world and what they're going through right now. 
you and I have very little to endure compared to many in other countries. This was the church of Smyrna, a persecuted church. Jesus tells this church of Smyrna that some of them will be put in prison. How would you like that prediction for you? Endure, you're about to be put in jail. You're about to lose your home. You're about to be outcast in society. You're about to be on the run for your faith. Our comfortable American Christianity doesn't like that. We have our 401ks, our savings accounts, our checking accounts. We have our assets and liabilities, right? Why don't we not let those things get to us as they do? It's easy to be faithless when it's all falling apart. But to be faithful means that you are living by faith, overcoming, because you trust that even when it's difficult, God has your back. Because you are His. A similar statement is made about endurance to the church in Philadelphia, to hold fast and to endure. So we live by faith, we overcome by making Jesus a priority, by being faithful in trials. Number three, by confronting false teaching. Confront false teaching. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, And did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans Which thing I hate? Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This church was a church that compromised their moral values. As many churches and individuals do today. We cannot compromise the standards of Scripture simply because we know someone that encourages us or may want us to commit sin with them. Nor should we put a stumbling block before others to cause them to sin. There's a lot that's mocked by those that come from strict Christian homes back in the 90s. But the one thing that should never be compromised is the moral ethic of Scripture. I see a lot of people that were my age, grew up in Christian homes, 
that did not like the legalism they grew up with. And what they do is they go the opposite extreme. They throw all the moral code of Scripture out with their opposition to legalism. The Nicolaitans, which can mean to conquer the people, infiltrated the church of Pergamos and got some in the church to believe that license is okay when it comes to sexual morality. Any church that is waving the rainbow flag is essentially doing what Pergamos did. They compromised. The compromise you see in the church today when it comes to morals has happened before. It's not something new. The early church battled these things as well. Overcoming means we do not tolerate this false teaching, nor do we participate in it. Believer, false teaching always leads to false living. Always. As soon as someone can say, God didn't really mean that, they are a tool of Satan. They are a tool of Satan. Goes all the way back to Genesis. Did God really say that you're going to die? Did he really mean that? No, that's not what he meant. You'll be like him. You'll be a God. He's holding back from you. This is so much better if you participate. It's essentially the arguments that are used today. Why would God not want you to be who you are? Why wouldn't he want you to experience what your friends experience? Living morally upright can be difficult in a culture that pushes its open depravity on us through computers, TVs, and phones. It's not easy today. Sin is more accessible than it's ever been. Before, you'd have to go somewhere. You don't have to go anywhere today. Open up the electronic device before you. The battle is right there. Confronting false teaching and being sure to live morally upright is essential in overcoming. Church, it's one thing for us to say the world should not be doing what it does in sexual immorality. It's another for us to live that upright life. Many call things out in the world, but they don't want to call out what's going on in the church. This was a struggle in the early church. It's still a struggle today. It has to be fought. This is not a territory we give up. Because it doesn't suit what people want. Pastor, can you just not be as offensive about this? No. I won't stop. And it's important that we live this ourselves. Men, ladies, we need to live this ourselves. 
Stop freaking out over what your kids are exposed to. Make sure you're living that yourself. Make sure you're living that pure example, fathers, before your own son. Oh, it's easy to talk about how we love God, how we love our spouse, but do it in practice the way God intends. The teaching of the Nicolaitans is one that God despised then and still despises today. In fact, a very similar point is made to the church of Thyatira, which had a woman called Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess and seduced people into sexual immorality. Church, as soon as somebody comes along and teaches you that it's really okay, it's really okay to promote sexual immorality in your church, you need to leave right away. That person's false in their teaching. God's called us to purity and holiness. What's tolerated in the church today should not be tolerated in the church today. What's tolerated in our own homes should not be tolerated in our own homes. So to live by faith and overcome is to, number one, make Christ a priority. Number two, be faithful in trials. Number three, confront false teaching. And number four, stop going through the motions. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This church looked like it was alive. Everybody would assume that it was a thriving church. But it really was dead. They were simply going through the motions. Going through the motions is an easy way to step out of living by faith, where we no longer depend on the Holy Spirit to move, where we do ministry on our own, in our own power, where we manufacture a sense of love for the things of God without God actually working in our lives. It's fraudulent and fake. There are plenty of followers of Christ that are simply going through the motions. Whatever progress they've already made in their spiritual walk can be taken away. It's easy to just do the Sunday morning thing every week. To pretend that we really have a heartbeat for the things of God. And frankly, we're very far away from Him.
to know that there's more to it all, but still not give a rip about what God is warning us about here. Oh, I know this is so important. I need to, got to stop going through the motions. Then why are we still doing it? Why are we still going through the motions? Why haven't we changed in this area? In order to overcome, live by faith, we need to stop going through the motions. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be real. Christ needs to matter. More than a simple post on Facebook. God forbid we post that we love him while secretly despising a lot of the things that he's telling us to do. The last way that we overcome or live by faith is number five. We repent of apathy. Revelation 3, verse 14 through 22. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This one is different than going through the motions. Because with that one, at least you're trying, albeit not realizing you've disconnected from God. This stage of apathy is very hard to fight against. Because it's essentially the child of God that's quit at, quit at all of it. They don't care for the things of God. They don't care for the church. They don't care to read the Bible. They don't care for any of those disciplines. Why should I attend the church? Everyone's a hypocrite anyways. They don't care to improve their relationships, even they, they, though they know what God says. What the Bible says doesn't really matter. What I think works out is what I'm going to go with. What's the point of even trying? I mean, besides, I'm going to fail God anyways. Why do, I, why do I even bother? Why even live this Christian life? That's the attitude here. Why do I even care? That's the state of the church today. So many so-called Christians in America. Why has nothing changed? 
Because that's essentially who God is speaking to today. The majority of American Christianity. Could care less about living any of their faith out. It's essentially the modern day church where we don't care for the things of God, but we look cool and trendy. We got a lot of Twitter followers. We look really cool on Facebook with our torn jeans, our cool haircuts, wonderful music and their lights that bring upon us some weird euphoric feeling. We're claiming that we love God and know him, and we really could care less about what he says. With apathy, we simply don't care what God thinks or the people of God. We don't care for them either. We think and we live just like practical atheists. We say we love God, we, we say that we believe the scriptures, but frankly, we don't care about any of it. We live like practical atheists all the while trashing those who live faithfully. Church, there's one way to spot people that are in this stage, and I hope you're not in here, but if you are, please realize this is a hard one to get out of. Because essentially when people are in this stage, they think every other Christian's doing everything wrong. And they've somehow figured out some new way that's never been experienced before. Because they're in somehow in touch with their feelings. We think that we're fine just the way we are. We don't need God anymore. We figured it out finally for ourselves. It wasn't about finding the God of the Bible. It's finding the true me. While being apathetic to what God says. It's truly a tough battle against apathy. Especially when we've reached this point. Different churches have different areas that they need to work on in order to walk by faith to overcome, as these letters clearly demonstrate. And many of us have different areas that we need to overcome or live by faith in, particularly personally. And where we need to overcome may not be where another person God is saying they need to deal with and overcome it. So in closing... Here's the question. Is your faith visible? Is your faith visible? Is this faith real to you as it was when you first believed? Is that as genuine as it was when you first came to Christ? Or have things crept in that have taken away that trust that you once had for God? You see, you either trust God more now or you trust him less. Maybe the love for brethren simply isn't there. You know you need to do something about it. But you just keep giving yourself a pass, waiting for everybody else to take the first step. I'm going to wait for others to show me that they love me. Is that what God would want? Is that what God wants is for all of us to look at everybody else's flaws and go, you know what, you need to love me better, brother, brother and sister. You're not doing a good job in this area. 
Or maybe he's saying, you do what I've called you to, and you watch me work in other people's lives. You take the first step. What are you waiting for? God's already loved you first. He's already made the first move. What's your response today? What's your response today? Don't you want to live by faith, believer? I mean, we sing songs about it, right? Living by faith. You know, there's one by Cutlass, like, I've seen faith that can move mountains. Do we live that faith? Do we want to overcome? Do we really believe that we are overcomers? Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world? Are we just miserable Christians that don't care? They've given up. Already tried so many times. It's not worth trying anymore. Get back up. Get back up, church. Fight another day. Remember that to live by faith, to overcome, is number one, to make Jesus priority. See if you're doing that today. To be faithful in trials. You're going to have trials in this life. Things are going to come up. They're going to rock your world. Number three, confront false teaching. We don't sugarcoat the truth. We don't bend to somebody else's false teaching. Number four, stop going through the motions. If that's you today, cut it out. Get back on track. Stop excusing your pathetic behavior. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and remember what Jesus did on your behalf. Number five, if you just don't care of any of the things that have been mentioned today, the number five is the one you need to do. Repent of apathy. Quit not caring. Quit having excuses for everything you don't care for. Church, may God help us to live as overcomers. And that can only happen by faith.